we are in week 19 <coughs> of Romans. Uh, so we've had 18 weeks. This is 19. And then I think next week is our last week in this section before we head into summer. And then after summer, we'll get into our second section in Romans. My name is Paul Stiver, one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. Thank you for being here. Great to see you. Uh, and uh, it is yeah, an emotional day, an emotional week. Obviously, our son Brooks being dedicated. Um, also emotional for those that were aware, uh, uh, someone that is heavily influential for us, Pastor Timothy Keller, uh, pastor in New York City, uh, passed away this week from pancreatic cancer after a three-year fight. And so just a weird week, emotional week. Uh, and I, there's like other things in this sermon I think are going to make me cry. So uh, if I cry, that happens. Uh, all right, let's get into it. Uh, I just want to do a quick thought project here. Uh, when you think about like a pop culture representation or portrayal of God, so someone acting or playing God in a, in a movie or TV show or even an art representation of God, take a second, what uh, God do you imagine? Which picture or which, uh, which person? Uh, think even now. All right, second over. <laughs> so here are some that maybe came to mind. Uh, the Simpsons version of God. He's kind of got this huge beard, right? He's giant and he's in bright clouds. Uh, so you got the Simpsons version of God. Maybe for most of us, we thought of uh, Morgan Freeman in the narrator. Uh, Morgan Freeman in the movie Bruce Almighty, right? He plays God and, and Jim Carrey comes and meets him and he's got this file. He's first a janitor, then he's God. And, uh, he's got a file cabinet on Jim Carrey's life. Uh, Bruce, Bruce, I don't know what his last name's not Almighty, but uh, anyway, right? Maybe we picture him or for the older crowd, a little George Burns action from the 1980s uh, in the movie, Oh God, starring John Denver. And, and George Burns plays God. And he says, um, they come to him when, when John Denver's in the shower and he goes, nothing I haven't seen before, right? Classic, classic God joke. And then, uh, um, but he says, George Burns says, I, I picked a look, he's telling John Denver, I picked a look you could understand. So he appears to him like George Burns, because that's a look you can understand. And I wanted to highlight that because uh, theologian A.W. Tozer says, uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what does he mean by that? Why, why does he say that? Uh, because we do, we, we tend to develop our own idea of God, of who he is, of what he's like, of what he wants, what he thinks about us. Uh, and, and that idea is at the back of our lives the most important thing about us. It's the thing that influences how we live, the decisions we make, the things we pursue in life, uh, the values and beliefs that we hold, ultimately does flow out of, no matter where we're at on the religious spectrum, what we think about God. And so we tend, though, to create a God of our own imagination. I was thinking this week of a few examples. Maybe we create a free pass God. So free pass God is uh, unconditional, kind of just God is love, overlooks wrongdoing, doesn't really uh, pay attention, kind of plays the wall and gives people a free pass to do whatever they want. And so for those of us who might tend to like a free pass God, our, our distaste actually comes from God's moral rigor. God is actually more morally rigorous than we want him to be. And so we have distaste. Or maybe we think of God as a cosmic vending machine, kind of in the corner for when I need it, um, not interested in being a part of my life necessarily, but something I can go to when I have a need. I just kind of, instead of 25 cents, I insert some, maybe some good deeds and maybe some prayers. And God is then supposed to bless me. Something's supposed to come out to meet my need. And so our distaste, if this is you, our distaste would be 
what happens when I don't get what I want? Then God's not good, right? How could he? I'm doing all the good stuff and he's not giving me the Doritos that I demand. Uh, and, uh, uh, I, love a, I love vending machines, by the way. Sidebar. Uh, scales of Justice God, maybe would be another one for you. Uh, scales of Justice God, a few different versions of this. One would be, uh, I just, at the end of the day, when I die, I just need to have more good than bad. If I just outweigh my uh, bad deeds with my good deeds, then God has to love me, has to accept me. Or maybe uh, kind of more uh, that idea of God helps those who help themselves. Uh, or maybe you think, uh, if I just get a little bit better each day, that, that's, God will accept that. That's good enough for God. And so we have, for those in this camp, we actually have a distaste when our uh, bad deeds are highlighted. When we're confronted by the fact that, uh, that we're not perfect, uh, we actually have a distaste in our mouth. Maybe you think of God as eggshells God. Uh, that he's just so rigid with his rules and his demands. And so our distaste actually comes that we don't think God's ways are life-giving. I don't, I, he just wants to pick me apart. Um, and lastly, an angry God. And, and we actually, we're going to look at Martin Luther a little bit, but this was kind of his picture of God as a, as a cosmic hammer, just waiting for us to mess up, um, ready to condemn. And, and so uh, today, just which one of those views of God resonates with you most as we get into this? Uh, and I want us to be thinking about that because in Romans 3, where we've got to, uh, we're getting to now in this section of Romans is, what, is the most important words ever penned. These are what God is revealing to us about who he is and what he's done. He wants to show us who he is. So this week's sermon is God is just and justifier, the second part of Romans 3.25 and then verse 26. So we're going to read the big idea real quick is God wants to show us something. As his plan of redemption plays out, God is desirous to show us something about who he is, namely that he is just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we might ask, how can God be just and justifier? In other words, how can he punish sin and let the guilty go free? God has painted himself into a corner and the paradox of God being just and justifier can only be resolved in one way. We're going to see what that is. So we're going to see how God works out his plan of redemption. And that way that he does that is going to change forever how we think about him and what comes into our mind when we think about God. So without uh, further ado, we're going to get into, we're just kind of, as we go through this, we're going to look at three things. Uh, the verse in context, and God is just, God is just the fire. And so we just, as we go every week, we just read the passage and make comments, follow themes. And so let's read the passage for today. Again, the arguably the most important words ever written, God telling us who he is and what he's done. Romans 3, 21 through 26 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that's the context of our passage. Uh, and then again, and so this was last week this idea of the cross, what is being described about the cross of Christ that says, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So that's what Brian taught to us about last week, that Christ is publicly displayed on the cross, that God wanted to do this as a demonstration to show something, uh, that this uh, event is public, that it is a propitiation. In other words, it is a wrath-absorbing and favor-giving sacrifice. So the, the punishment, the penalty is taken by Christ and turned into blessing. That's propitiation. Brian led us through that, showed us that the Old Testament system actually is pointing forward to this reality that it is by blood, but it is not by the blood of a lamb or a goat as in the Old Testament system, but it's by the blood of Christ, of God's very son. And that this righteousness now that is available because of the cross is to be received by faith. So that's our passage again in its context. And why is it done? And so again, to read our passage, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if, if last week was the what of the cross, this week is the why. And we see two times to show or to demonstrate, to, to put forward. I want you to see this about me. I want you to take this car for a test drive, as it were, right? I want, want you to know what this is. Why do this cross the way that I have done it? And so there's two things he's showing. One, his righteousness because he had passed over former sins. And two, his righteousness at the present time. This is kind of double righteousness showing. Okay, let's get into it. So let's look at that. Where else in Romans do we see this idea of to show? And the first one, if you remember, comes from Romans chapter one, when God is, is almost kind of writing to the Gentiles, to people that are not of Jewish descent, who didn't have his 10 commandments and the rest of his laws, who weren't his chosen people. It says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And now here's this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God here is actually saying in Romans, Paul's saying God has actually shown enough to be just for Gentiles to believe in him. He's shown in the creation. When you look around, there has to be someone that has eternal power and a divine nature. Matter can't come from nowhere. So there's got to be someone behind this. And Paul's saying God's actually revealed enough. He uses language later to say he's, they're, they're without excuse. That for us that reject God, we're without excuse. That even when we look at creation. But he goes further to the Jewish people who, who have actually received special revelation from God. Who've been given his word and his laws and commands. And in talking to the Jewish people, he, Paul says this. God shows no partiality. He says uh, I don't play favorites. There's no insider trading with God. He says, no matter what, you've sinned. All have sinned. That's the language we just read. And so God has actually shown enough to be just. Whether it's showing it in the creation or showing it in his word, he's shown enough to be just. And now he's showing another thing. He's showing his righteousness in two ways. He's showing his righteousness in two ways. One, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And the other, that at the present time, he is now uh, capable of being just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But let's get into that. Let's talk about the divine forbearance. What's happening here? So Christ goes to the cross and it's actually God's showing his righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The forbearance we might think of right away of student loans, right? That they're, I don't have to pay them for six months. They're, they're for, forbeared? Uh, anyway, right? Uh, I don't have to pay them for six months. Um, it's, pa- it's passed further down the road. So what's happening here? In the storyline of the Bible, Genesis 3, right at the beginning of the book, is when sin enters the world. Adam and Eve sin, and, and when we read it, actually Adam blames God, right? He's like, this woman you put here with me. He's like, you did this. He tells God he's, God's wrong for what he's done. And we could expect that he would be smited, smote right then. That, how does Adam continue on? God's passing over. But how long will he pass over? And in our Western sensibilities, we have a hard time in our Western thinking uh, of the idea of a just God, of a God who will punish in the end. Um, but actually the question being asked here by Paul is, or the accusation Paul's implying could be this. God, you are unjust because you don't punish evil. You're unjust because you haven't moved to punish wrongdoing. And actually a God who isn't just, a God who doesn't punish evil in the end is not worthy of our worship. Uh, and maybe for that, we get to listen to someone from an Eastern culture. Uh, Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian and he has seen in his life genocide and evil and murder uh, and, uh, and war. And he says this, it challenges us. He says, violence thrives today, secretly nourished by a belief that God refuses to take the sword. He says, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a, scor- in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, again, what he's seen, the idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. See what he's saying? He's saying you can't ask someone to pursue nonviolence if there isn't ultimately a judgment. There has to be justice in the end. I was just talking with Caitlin about this, that like true crime podcasts and stuff, when they end, if there's not a, uh, like someone didn't get arrested and, tr- and convicted of the crime, you're like, why did I listen to that, right? We want justice. We demand justice. A God who doesn't judge is actually bad news. And if that's the case, Wolf is saying, if, if there's no God who's gonna make all things right, pick up the sword. That's our only option. Retaliation, violence. So evil cannot go unpunished. And we think about this in a, in a more modern reality, right? If, if a governor, so there's the idea of a governor can pardon someone uh, of a crime, they can go free, right? Uh, if a governor, so let's say a governor uh, pardons a criminal. Uh, so there's a criminal and then the victims of that criminal and the governor comes in and says, no, no, I'm pardoning them. I'm letting them go free. Who pays the cost? The victims, right? They do not get justice. They're denied justice. The governor just comes in and says, here you go, you're free to go. And now the victims are paying the cost. They're saying this person committed crimes against us and they get to go free. That would be wrong. There would be a cost absorption. So then why God's patience? Why the divine forbearance? Why does he not punish sins until, in the sense, until the cross of Christ? It says in Romans 2, we've read this already. Paul says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's saying, why did God wait? 
Why did God take all this time? It's actually because he's that righteous. And he's waiting for people to come back to him. He's waiting for kindness to lead to repentance, a word that just means turn back to God, turn from ways and turn back to God. So again, in our passage, God is showing his righteousness in the cross of Christ to show he is just. He will punish sin. The shock here is it's Christ's cross. It's the cross of his son where he demonstrates his justice. He wants us to see that. That's why it is at the present time. God was passing over sins until the cross of his son. He wants us to see that the way he's going to demonstrate his justice most clearly is in the cross of his son. But for some of us, again, Western mindset, uh, we, we hate the idea. We hate the idea that God is just, that he's in the right. For, for anyone that rejects Christ, he's in the right to hold them accountable for their sins. We don't like that. And yet somebody else didn't really like God's righteousness. A little guy named Marty Luther, Martin Luther. Anybody ever heard of this guy? Uh, no, but uh, it's actually, uh, I have to have Martin Luther in this sermon because as a reformed preacher, uh, if you don't talk about Martin Luther in these passages, you actually go straight to jail, straight to jail. Uh, it, you got to talk about Luther here. Uh, but I want to talk about Luther. He hated this verse in Romans. He hated it. It says, verse uh, one, chapter one, verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says this, I hated that word righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically of the formal or active justice as they called it, by which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unrighteous. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not live indeed. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly. I was angry with God. saying, I, I couldn't, I felt like God, I couldn't do enough. My conscience was so disturbed. I hated the righteous God. I was angry with God. For some of us, we are. We're angry at God. We don't like his just standard. We want to set the standard for ourselves. We don't like that his word wants to uh, guide us and, and rule over us and point us to Christ. We want a morality that we create. And so we hate that God does this. And I think Martin Luther, I think we can tend to actually think of God like, uh, and I, trust me, we're getting somewhere with the game Bop It, right? You guys know the game Bop It? Uh, this is an old version. Bop It Extreme. Bop It. Twist It. Spin It. Uh, this game is so fun. But you can't really win Bop It. I know you can kind of set a high score, but the way to, that Bop It ends is you lose. You, you ran out. You stopped. You couldn't do anymore. But we picture God that way. We think uh, he's just thrown us the game bopping in our lives and we just have to do everything right and maybe at the end we'll still lose. Uh, we gotta be perfect, never fail, and we won't win anyway. And Luther felt this way about God. That's why he hated God's righteousness. He was angry at God, but Luther uh, is, is called God's volcano. He started something. He had a realization that erupted and changed the whole world. And this was his realization. It was unrighteousness. So he uses some big theological words here, infused versus imputed. Infused righteousness simply means coming from within, essentially. And imputed means being declared over. 
And now here's what Luther realizes. He's studying these passages. It's this, these two words. We don't normally talk in the, in the languages, but we're getting into it today. Eustificare, that first one there. Eustificare in the Latin. And then dikaio in the Greek. And here's what Luther realized as he meditated over these words. Eustificare in the Latin, which was not the original, or what not what it was, yeah, the Greek is the original. Eustificare means like what God is doing in righteousness is he's making unrighteous people righteous. So it's got to come from within us. We've got to make ourselves righteous. And what hit Luther is that it's actually the word is dikaio. But what God is doing in our passage is he's declaring unrighteous people to be righteous. It's not that we in and of ourselves have made ourselves righteous, but actually out from outside of us, we'll talk about later, an alien righteousness that comes in and is declared over us. When Luther realized that, that God declares unrighteous people to be righteous, his whole world opened up. Romans 1.17 then reimagined. It says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What Luther realized is that the game of Boppet had been won. That Christ had done it. And he declared his victory over anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. There's no more running and striving and trying to drum up a righteousness from within ourselves. God says, you are just. You're in the right. You are righteous. How? Because you believed in my son who actually is righteous. That's imputation. That's God declaring it over us. Luther then says this, finally, by the mercy of God, as I meditated day and night, I paid attention to the context of the words. In, the right, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that, which by the, by, is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. This then is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. The passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous one lives by faith. He continues, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There's, there a totally other face of all the scriptures showed itself to me and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. And here's why. The righteousness of God through, verse 22 of Romans 3 here, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. The pathway to righteousness for us is not drumming it up from within ourselves to be good enough. For God or for others, you name it. The path is actually to abandon our self-trust, our faith in our own goodness, and turn, repent, turn to, the, to our faith in the goodness of God. You cannot, if someone offers you a gift and you say, no, you didn't receive that gift. Verse 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift. This is a free offer. This is, the walking through the gates of paradise is available to all. That's what Luther realized and that's what made the gospel turn the world upside down. That right, we can be declared to be righteous simply through faith in Christ. John Stott defines it this way. He says, justification or righteousness is a legal term borrowed from the law courts. It is the exact opposite of condemnation. To condemn is to declare somebody guilty. To justify is to declare him not guilty. 
innocent or righteous. In the Bible, it refers to God's act of unmerited, undeserved favor by which he puts a sinner right with himself, not only pardoning or acquitting him, but accepting him and treating him or her as righteous. Right? He gives us the completed Boppet high score. Right? A Bruce Almighty example. Bruce Almighty has, got, he has a God that has a filing cabinet filled with all his wrong deeds, his wrong actions, his wrong thoughts. When we put our faith in Christ, it is as though our filing cabinet that God sees is all of Christ's good works, including his death. Accepting a sinner, a guilty sinner, and treating them as righteous. But here's where we got to get to our other question. Some of us may be already thinking it. How can God let a guilty person go free? If God is just, wouldn't he be wrong to declare unjust, guilty sinners innocent? And this is where God has painted himself into a corner. This is not actually God. Uh, it's just an image from Canva of someone who had painted themselves into a corner. And the paint's red. It means nothing. All right, I'll stop. The, so, uh, like the blood of Christ. All right, declare innocent. Here's the thing. So God has painted himself in a corner, right? How can he, on the one hand, punish sin, and on the other hand, let sinners go free? How can he do it? It's a paradox. You have to do this hand motion when you say Paradox. That's in the preaching handbook. Um, all right, so how can he though, how can he punish sin and let the guilty go free? Again, going back to our, perp, uh, our criminal and victim and, and uh, governor pardon example. If a governor pardons a criminal who's been convicted, then the victims end up paying the cost, right? They absorb the cost. We are denied justice because of your pardon. So you, governor, are unjust. unless the cost is paid by another. Unless the governor says, I'm going to pardon this guilty criminal because I'm going to go to the chair. I'm going to die. Here's how I'm pardoning them. I'm going to pay the cost the justice demands. In order for God to declare guilty people innocent, a cost must be paid. He's painted himself into this corner that can only be resolved one way. And he's done this to show his righteousness at the present time. As verse 26 says, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why do we have the cross? So on the one hand, God can show that he's just in punishing evil. And on the other hand, so that he can show that he's actually in the right to let guilty people go free when they put their trust in Christ. He's not unjust to let, innocent, to let guilty people go free, to be declared innocent. He's in the right to let guilty sinners go free who believed in Jesus. And why? Because Christ has died. He's taken the penalty. He's paid the cost. And in fact, God would be unjust to deny us our amnesty. If you put your faith in Christ, God would be unjust. It would be wrong of God to hold any other sin against you because of the way he set it up. So as Brian's led us many times to consider, how can a, we, we ask, how can a just God send anyone to hell? Romans asks, how can a just God allow anyone in heaven? It is because of the cross. On the cross, 
God's holiness and justice and righteousness and goodness, his purity that says, if there's even a shred of wrongdoing, it has to be cast away from me. Meet his love and grace and mercy and patience. The cross is what God wants to show us. It's where he's showing us who he is. Christ publicly displayed for us to believe this explosive event. R.C. Sproul describes it this way. Where do we find in scripture the fullest expression of the love of God in the cross? Where do we find the most awful manifestation of the wrath of God? It is, is it not also in the cross where he pours out his wrath upon his own son? That same act shows that God judges sin and yet is a loving and merciful God. The cross and the paradox of the cross is resolved, resolves this paradox of God as just and justifier. Because on the cross, the innocent one dies for the guilty. God judges, but he judges his son. So now God is in the right to tell guilty people, you're free to go. Your cost has been paid. Your penalty has been paid. A one-verse description of that that comes from 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for, in, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as uh, recently deceased Tim Keller says, the Christian gospel is this. I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved that he was glad to die for me. Okay, but those are big theology words and considerations. I've used many syllables to this point. What about in the story? What, do we, what is God showing us about who he is in the story? For that, I want to go to Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And I want to, Jesus is going to tell this parable to people with the wrong idea of who God is. And what he really thinks of us. So it says this in Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered the, his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Okay, so he's in a far country. He's now feeding pigs. This is a Jewish person. He's now associating with the lowest of the low in that sense. Continuing on, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so now what's gonna happen is he's gonna go back and this is a shattered pot. In this culture, he's gonna go back and because he had cut himself off from his people, they're gonna cut themselves off from him. The shattered pot represents what's called the kazaza ceremony in this culture. And they would actually, when this person came back and it was found to have squandered their money in living among the Gentiles, uh, they would have smashed this pot and said, you are cut off. You have alienated yourself from us. You have no rights. You are not a part of this community. And this is a picture of what we've all done in rejecting God. We've cut ourselves off. But Luke 15 continues. Jesus says this, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So the son comes, but the father beats him to that. And we've got to see this. So I consulted a, um, a, a commentary by Kenneth Bailey, who's, who's writing on the gospel through Middle Eastern eyes. He spent a lot of time living in the Middle East, and so he can culturally explain things that we might not understand that Jesus wants us to see about this parable and that the original readers would have understood, the hearers would have understood this. So he says, as the prodigal returned to the village, this is Kenneth Bailey, he expected his father to remain aloof in the house while he made his way through the village. To say the least, he would be subdued in the process by the crowd in the street. As soon as they discovered that the money had been lost among Gentiles, the kazaza ceremony would have been enacted. The son would have then be obliged to sit for some time outside the gate of the family home before being allowed to even see his father. Finally, he would be summoned with the boy already rejected by the village. The father would be very angry and the boy would be obliged to apologize for everything as he pleaded for job training in the next village. But this is not what happens. No one in the village, he's now describing the culture, thinks or acts as a separate person, but as a part of the tightly knit village society. The individual's solidarity with that community is unshakable. The father, however, reacts in a very countercultural manner. He breaks all the rules of oriental patriarchy as he runs down the road to reconcile his son to himself. The word run in Greek, dramon, is the technical term used for the foot races in the stadium. Paul uses this word a number of times in this sense. Luke is a well-educated man who chooses his words carefully. So Luke's right in the parable here and he chooses his words carefully. Thus we can translate the phrase, his father saw him and had compassion and raced. It is not just a slow shuffle or a fast walk, he races. In the Middle East, a man of his age and position always walks in a slow, dignified fashion. It is safe to assume that he has not run anywhere for any purpose for 40 years. No villager over the age of 25 ever runs, but now the father races down the road. To do so, he must take the front edge of his robes in his hand like a teenager. Before we move on, we just have to see one thing. The son thinks, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my dad all the things and he's going to say, all right, let's make it right. But what we see is the father saw him. Verse 20 said his father was watching. His father was scanning the horizon. When is my son coming back to me? He takes, he's running, he's racing to him, continues. When he does this, when the father does this, his legs show in what is considered a humiliating posture. All of this is painfully shameful for him. The loiterers in the street who are there to focus on the son will be distracted from tormenting the prodigal and will instead run after the father, amazed at seeing this respected village elder shaming himself publicly. It is his compassion that leads the father to race out to his son. He knows what his son will face in the village. He takes upon himself the shame and humiliation do the prodigal. This is the story of the cross. Publicly displayed, Christ, 
humiliated, despising the shame, taking our place because of the compassion of God. Paying the cost, bearing the guilt, receiving the condemnation we deserve so that we can be covered by his robes of righteousness. We can exchange our nakedness for royal robes. And we do this the moment we believe the gospel. The moment we put our faith in Christ, justified. Righteous before God. That's the system God has set up. And Jesus tells us his story so that we think about God this way. When God is described as just and justifier, he's saying, I will by no means clear the the guilty, but I've made a way for guilty people to be declared righteous. So he's not a free pass God letting us just get away with whatever we want. He's not a cosmic vending machine who wants to play the wall and be there for us when we need him. He's intimately involved in our lives. He's not a skills of justice God waiting for us to just get a little bit better. He's not an eggshells God always nitpicking. He's not an angry God. He's compassionate. When Jesus wants us to see who God is, he tells the story of a father paying the cost to redeem his son, to bring his children back to him, to reconcile them. And so the the parable concludes here, starting in verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. They celebrate. God is not reluctant to save sinners. He's lavish. He's excessive. And even here, there's a death before the party can really begin. Alienation turns to acceptance. Isolation turns to celebration. God is shown here as a father, desirous for his children to come back to him. And the way this happens again, as our verse says, is is we believe in Christ. We receive this gift by faith. It is a gift. Uh, For those of us that maybe don't always understand grace, I I was thinking about grace this week, and we tell our, our boys at bedtime, these things. We say, I love you because I love you. I love you because I'm your dad. I love you because you're my son. There's nothing you can do to lose my love because there's nothing you did to earn my love. And we say, who else loves you like that? And they don't know what to say yet, but they will say, God does. Even more than me, even more than me. That's what grace is. There's nothing you can do to lose my love because there's nothing you did to earn my love. God's holding this out as a gift that we must receive. And he can do that. He's in the right to be just and he's in the right to justify sinners because Christ has drank the cup of wrath to the dregs. Through faith we are righteous. We receive this as an alien righteousness. Again, one that comes from outside of us and is declared over us. Ben's giggling up here because I, uh, I use the Toy Story aliens a lot. Alien righteousness. It's one that comes from outside of us, declared over us. And this, for, no, this sermon is not just for those who have yet to believe. This sermon is for those of us who believe this gospel. Because we tend to look inside for our own righteousness. 
But this changes us, these four words, because this is ultimately the gospel in four words right here. I'm okay in Jesus. I'm justified by God. I'm okay in Jesus. This changes just a few things I want us to consider how it changes the way that we think about things. When we're not looking for righteousness from within, but we're receiving an alien righteousness, one declared over us by God through our faith in Christ, we become people who actually can forgive from the heart. We can lay down the things we're holding over others because we realize, who was I? Who am I? Guilty, deserving of wrath. I'm no better. Maybe I didn't sin in that way, but I've sinned in many ways. We offer forgiveness in a way that we never can if we're looking for righteousness from within. How about justice seeking? Oftentimes, seeking justice can just be a, our way of adding another merit badge to our own goodness. I want people to know how good of a person I am because I support this cause and I do that thing. But when our righteousness is declared over us, we actually seek justice for people's sake and to show who God is. We say, I've been guilty and I've received mercy. Therefore, I want you to receive the same compassion and treatment. We live in a time of social media. All we do is browse and scroll and compare. We see someone have a child or get a new job or find a relationship or uh, buy a new house. And we've, we feel, because if our righteousness is coming from within, we feel like, oh, they're doing better than me. I got to do better. I got to do more. I can't fully rejoice with them because I first think about how their success reflects on my unsuccess. But when our righteousness is declared over us, we can actually rejoice with people. We can actually celebrate when they have wins. And the same way we can suffer with them, mourn with them when they mourn. Because we don't look at their suffering and say, oof, sucks to suck. I don't have that problem. But we actually say, I know what it's like. And finally, relationships. When our righteousness is declared over us, then relationships become, we run away from transactional. We run away from cutting out toxic people. Why? Because we're toxic. We know that. We were guilty and God reconciled us to himself. And so now we're humble and long-suffering with those we disagree with. One more illustration I just wanted to close. This is from the movie Beautiful Boy from 2018. It stars Steve Carell uh, as a dad and Timothy Chalamet as a son who has addiction. And the whole movie is just, it's long. You feel the pain of this. The son is prodigal. He's hurt many people through his addiction and he's hurting. But eventually he comes back to his father. Eventually he gets clean and sober. And, and one of the reasons he does is because his father always told him this. This is a, a quote from the movie. His father says to him from when he was a kid, do you know how much I love you? If you could take all the words in the language, it still wouldn't describe how much I love you. And if you could gather all those words together, it still wouldn't describe what I feel for you. What I feel for you is everything. I love you more than everything. And to the point in the movie, they would say to each other, everything, everything. And it was that love that beckoned him to get well, that healed him. When the arms of Christ are outstretched on the cross so that God can justify guilty sinners like us, he's saying to us, I love you more than everything. 
There's no length or limit I will go to to reconcile you to myself. The arms outstretched are symbolic of the Father's arms reaching out to us to reconcile us to himself so, we, so he can celebrate. So as we close, just ask this. Two questions as we move toward a time. Two more songs and, and communion. Is God your justifier? Have you, are you tired of trusting in yourself to try and make yourself good enough for yourself, for others, for God? And are you ready to just receive his righteousness declared over you? Then, then all Christianity asks is belief. And for those who have, and this is, this, oh, before we get into that, this is why we do baby dedications. We're saying each one must believe. That's what the gospel teaches That's the picture of God. He's shown to us. Therefore, this is a message to be believed. And in fact, he will be in the right if we reject this message. He will be in the right to hold us accountable if we reject this gift. So is God your justifier? Second, if he is, if you, if you said yes to Jesus, your filing cabinet is full of good stuff. All God sees when he looks at you is his son. All the goodness all the things he's ever done are declared over you. So see God as just and justifier and enjoy that good news. And here's how I want us to do it. We're going to let God show us who he is with communion. We normally don't prescribe things to do during communion. We maybe reflect, pray. But here's what I want you to do. If you're taking communion today, and I'll explain our, our theology of communion, I want you to boast in it. You're okay in Jesus. When you walk out the doors today, you're okay in Jesus because you've put your faith in him. So when you take that broken, you break the bread and you drink the cup, boast in it. God loves you more than everything. He's given his son so that he can have you. And you are now righteous in his sight. As we move to communion now, we, just, uh, we don't ask that you'd be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that you'd be a follower of Jesus. That you'd be someone that said, yes, I believe in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, the fulfillment of all his promises to me, even eternal life. If that's the case, we'd love to have you take this communion meal with us and, and boast in that righteousness of God declared over you today. So we're gonna, I'm gonna pray. Worship team's gonna come back up and sing a couple more songs and we'll take communion together uh, as you see fit. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross that are symbolic of your outstretched arms to us as a father. You want to show us who you are. And when you do, you say you're just and justifier, that you are worthy of worship because you will ultimately deal with the evil in the world, the injustice that we see, and that you've dealt with the evil and injustice in our hearts through Christ's death on the cross. So we thank you that you are also justifier. You are the one who is able to declare guilty people innocent and righteous because Christ has absorbed the cost. He's paid the penalty for us and he lives. So we thank you today. We boast in your righteousness declared over us, not by anything that we've done, but simply because we believed in the name of your son, Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.